My name's Kelly. If you don't know me, hi. It's very nice to meet you. Uh, Pastor Mike had us do that little exercise a minute ago uh, where we were sort of standing in silence, you know, just waiting to hear from God. Uh, it reminded me of something that happened recently. Uh, I was working at home, and I'm a pastor, so I had my Bible handy. I was studying at home, and I decided I was going to multitask because that's what we do in, uh, in this modern era. And so I had my Bible, and I read Psalm 46.10. Do me a quick favor. If you happen to know Psalm 46.10 off the, just off the cuff, you know what that is. Raise your hand. See if anybody, any takers. Okay, we got one. You'll, many of you will be familiar with it. It says, it's God's instruction to us. Be still and know that I am God. That seems like a really simple instruction, doesn't it? When, when you're in trouble, when you're panicked, when you have anxiety, when you're scared, when you're frustrated, when you're sad, just be still and know that I'm God. I have it under control. Um, so I, was, I had read that, and I'm making my lunch. So I pulled some, something, out, like a pizza or something, out of the freezer and popped it in the microwave, 60 seconds. And I found myself, while it's cooking, standing there going like this. Jeez, 60 seconds for a pizza? Who's supposed to live like this? It's taking forever, as it's a 60-second pizza, right? 30 years ago, that was a two-hour project. And I'm impatient with 60 seconds. And it was like God just said to me, you suck at Psalm 4610. I don't know if God would actually say the words, you suck. Probably not. Um, but I realize I am not very good at it. And then just, then just now when we stood in silence for like 45 minutes or something like that, it was, it was probably more like 12 seconds, I found myself like having to just focus, like make intentional effort not to do something, to not do something, like to not say something, not to let the wheels in my head turn. And I thought to myself, I need Jesus. There's something wrong with me. Um, and I, I just want to encourage you this morning, I want to share something with you that I'm excited about. Uh, it has made a difference in my life, just learning from a, a few key biblical figures. And the truth is, I think, I think God can do something exciting in your life, something literally transformative in your life through what we're going to talk about today. Um, so I want to encourage you to try and slow the wheels uh, to... Uh, to just hear from God today. Compared to Pastor Mike, I won't talk that long. So, yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. Um, but let me, let me do something, uh, something totally unrelated, first of all. Um, who am I? Who is this guy? My name's, my name's Kelly Armstrong. This is my lovely wife, Brandy. Uh, Brandy and I, about five years ago, we were on staff here at this church, and we left and went to Spokane, which is where we're from. It's our hometown to plant a church uh, over there with some friends who are on staff at another church here. And uh, it's hard for me to believe that it's been about five years since we left. Uh, we have three children, Micah, Hannah, and Ezra. One of them is about the same height as me anymore. Uh, now, that would probably surprise those of you who know him, but that's what happens when you feed your children. They get bigger. Uh, this is what I, I want to say to you is that five years have gone by. Thank you for letting us remain part of your family. Now, this, for us, um, if we don't know each other, uh, this is kind of neither here nor there, but this, for us, is a very safe space. Uh, Brandy and I both still continue to have very strong emotional ties to this place. And um, so this church is very, very special to us. So thank you for letting us continue to be part of your family. Here's the thing about families. Every family has a weird uncle, right? Most of the family sees each other regularly, but the weird uncle, he rolls in like once or twice a year, and everybody knows about the weird uncle except the weird uncle, right? Um, and I realized this morning, like, in some ways, I kind of fit the criteria to 
maybe be the weird uncle. Uh, so we'll try to avoid that, that pitfall this morning. Uh, but thanks for letting us stay part of your family. And uh, thanks for putting this step here so I look like a normal height human uh, right now. Uh, I travel around periodically to do this um, on Sunday mornings, and I'm at various conferences and, and those kinds of things. And uh, when I go outside the state of Washington, I meet people who uh, are not from Washington. This is where they think I'm from. They, they think I'm from here. In fact, I have a picture uh, of some of the things that they, uh, they might think of there. Uh, should be the second slide up there, Justin. Um, this is what they think of when I tell people I'm from Washington. Space Needle, Mount Rainier, Microsoft, Seahawks, Puget Sound, all the amazing, awesome stuff about the Northwest. But that's not where I actually live. This picture is where I actually live. Um, yeah. They, they meet me. I tell them from Washington. They're like, why aren't you wearing, like, you know, skinny jeans? They expect me to be a hipster because that's what's in Washington. But that's where I actually live, eastern Washington. That's where I grew up. It's where I'm from. It's where my past was made. Uh, it's, where, it's where my formative days happened. Uh, my past, it took shape in eastern Washington, Spokane specifically, is where, we, uh, is where we live. And, you know, you have a past, too. You grew up somewhere. You have a home that you came from. And here's the thing about your hometown. Uh, when you leave it and you go back to it again, you see things differently. Uh, like, I didn't realize how many people actually do park their car in their yard in eastern Washington. <laughs> I know. You all had that perception. You probably knew, but I grew up there, so I was oblivious to it. But, yeah, it turns out, I, I remember when we moved back, we were like, what is up with everyone parking their car in their lawn? Uh, but when you grow up somewhere, uh, and then you leave and you come back, what happens is there's a culture, you know, there's an environment that you're used to, and you tend to either fall in line with it and love that environment, or you become hyper aware of it, and you become like vehemently opposed to many things of the culture. In so many ways, I'm just a total fish out of water. I don't own anything camo. I don't have a truck. I don't park it in the yard. Uh, probably nothing wrong with any of those things, but those are, those are like part of the culture that I just, I'm a total fish out of, out of water for. And, um, you know, it's funny how growing up in that environment actually shaped my attitude toward those kind of things and a whole bunch of other things. Because your environment informs your past. It shapes you. Generally speaking, we either have fondness for our past your home, the place you grew up, you either have fond memories or you might have some contempt for some of the things that you grew up with. You know what I mean? That's not as like, exciting or as fun to talk about, but the memories we have of the past, they shape our attitudes. They shape the way we think. They shape our actions. Man, our past affects our relationships in so many ways, doesn't it? It affects everything we do in the future. We shape our view of God. We shape our self-worth based on our past, what we've been told, uh, what our environment has communicated to us. We shape the way we view others based on our past. Uh, I grew up in a home with parents who are extremely hospitable, very gracious, loving people. Um, so that kind of became part of my attitude. Uh, my wife will tell you I actually swung the other direction probably, but, uh, but that's, that's my normal because that's where I grew up. Our past shapes who we are. One of my earliest childhood memories is taking swimming lessons. Uh, did anybody ever take, uh, take like formal swim lessons at the YMCA? Of course, probably quite a few of us. 
Okay, so uh, it's one of my earliest memories. I was probably about four years old when I took these swim lessons. And I should clarify by saying, I don't actually remember like, the specifics of the lessons. I just remember that it happened. Like, I have a mental picture of the place. I know that it went there. I know that it happened. And when you take swim lessons, the outcome is you know how to swim. Okay. Uh, so at about four years old, maybe five, but sometime before I went to kindergarten, very early in my life, I took swim lessons at the YMCA, don't judge me, in Billings, Montana. Okay. So actually, that doesn't look that bad at this point. Um, <laughs> uh, so I took these swim lessons. And then later on, a couple years later, after I went to school, in second grade, I had a buddy named Ryan. Ryan lived right down the street, and Ryan and his mom invited me to go swimming with them. I don't remember where it was, a community center of some kind. And I was like, heck yes, I know how to swim. I took swim lessons. So I went swimming with them, and we came into the room where the, where the pool was. I immediately dropped my stuff and right off the edge, on the, right in the deep end. Just plopped right in, because I took swim lessons. I remembered, I, I took swim lessons. I must know how to swim. Turns out they weren't very effective. <laughs> I, went, I mean, it was immediately apparent that the swim lessons didn't do their job, because I went straight to the bottom. Now, obviously, I survived, uh, but my memory was telling me something that wasn't consistent with reality, right? My memory was telling me, oh, you know how to swim, because you went to the thing but it turned out I didn't. And then, after that, my memory was telling me another lie. Because I remember being about 12 years old at a lake cabin with some friends. After I had learned how to swim, standing on the end of the dock as they're all splish-splashed in and out, jumping around, having fun, standing there thinking, I'm not sure if I know how to swim. I'm not sure I'm confident about this. Because my memory of the day at the pool was, our, you know, was telling me something else that wasn't consistent with reality. Right? Our memories inform our present. Our memories of the past shape the way that we think about the future. And here's the thing. Um, sometimes it tells us a lie. Maybe your memory tells you the truth all the time, but my experience has been sometimes my memory skews the past. Sometimes I think about the past and I'm way more awesome than I actually was, but most of the time I tend to think a lot less of myself, uh, a lot less of other people. Sometimes my memory just lies to me. And that's true for you too. I don't want to burst your bubble. That's true for all of us. Uh, speaking in, of jumping in the deep end, this is what I want to talk about for a few minutes. I want to talk about your past. Welcome to Celebration Center. You'll be so glad you came. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to jump in the deep end. And here's why I think it's important. Because you're in past, your past informs who you are. You are who you are right now because of your past. That's, that's how you got here. Your past is doing right now, as you're sitting here, one of two things for you. It's either providing a foundation of strength and encouragement for you. It's either building up your confidence or it's doing just the opposite. Maybe it's a weight of shame or regret around your neck. Maybe it's just telling you, man, I wish I would have handled that differently. Your past is either lifting you up or it's pulling you down. That's, that's what our past does for us. So I wanna just ask you this, to think about this question. And it might create some emotions. You might not even wanna think about it. Uh, but where's your home? What are the things that informed who you are? What are the significant moments, the defining moments of your past? If you just think about maybe you know, your childhood or your adolescence or your young adult years, 
What are the, the really defining moments that come to mind? We all have them. Chances are there's probably 10 to 15 kind of pivotal moments in your life, and maybe like two or three that are like, that, that informed who I am. That was defining for me. Uh, we, all, we all have those. But let me ask you this question. If your past is your story, your past is how you got here, is your past a place that you long for, or is it a place that you would rather avoid? Maybe some of both. There's probably some of both back there. But are there moments back there that you're trying really hard to remember, and are there others that you would really rather forget? I think the answer is yes for just about all of us. That's, that's a reality. You know, maybe it was like the mullet stage. It just needs to go away. I know that there's a picture of my wife with like a side ponytail and a hyper-color T-shirt. Um, the 90s were not pretty. The 90s weren't good to anyone, I don't think. Uh, of course, I don't mean that. That's, that's not what I'm what I'm talking about. Where in the past have you shut the door and barred it closed and thrown away the key and you just try to avoid thinking about that because it's too uncomfortable? It's too frustrating. It's too shameful, whatever emotion it is. Well, today is an opportunity. Today is an opportunity to have closure on that, to put that to rest, to put that in Christ and leave it behind. And so I, I want to encourage you to do that. And I just want to give you this one scripture um, from John chapter 8, verse 36, which reminds us that Jesus came to give us complete freedom, not partial freedom. He paid the bill. The bill is paid in full for shame, regret, bitterness, hostility, um, jealousy, things like this. It says, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. It's not, a, it's not a partial deal. Jesus didn't settle part of the score, and now you have the opportunity to work for it. He paid the bill. He paid the bill in full. And so that's the direction I just want to go. Uh, I'm going to tell you a couple stories from the Bible that I think you'll find interesting. They're probably familiar to a lot of you. But here's the big idea that I want you to have in mind, okay? This is, this is the big idea, that until you embrace forgiveness for your past, you won't be free from it. Until you embrace forgiveness for the past. Now, that might be forgiving somebody else. That might mean, you know what, you need to just give yourself a break now, too. Yeah, you screwed that up, but it's in the past. God is in the business of course corrections and reconciliation. Until we embrace forgiveness, throw our arms around that, we can't be free from the past. I think, I think most of us can understand that. I don't, I don't think that's hard to get you on board with. Um, but I had this situation one time, maybe some of you could relate to this. I had a colleague who was somebody I looked up to. I considered them a friend, uh, a little bit older than me, more accomplished, uh, had a good relationship with. And one day, com completely out of the blue, uh, they, they just criticized me so heavily in front of a group of our peers. And you know, it seems like one of those things that I should have been like, okay, well, whatever, dude, and moved on. It just crushed my confidence. You know what I mean? You ever, you ever had somebody do or say something that just, that just wiped you out, and you're like, I should not be carrying this around like this, but this is just, this has just got me down, and this is what I, I thought. I thought to myself, okay, I need to breathe for a second here. Like I'm kind of sucking wind at the moment, but I'm going to put this behind me. I, I'm going to move on. Like I'm going to forgive them, and then a year later, I said, 
okay, I just need to breathe for a minute. I'm going to move on. I'm going to forgive them. And then a year later, I said, okay, I'm going to move on. I need to forgive them, but I am just need to breathe for a minute right here. And then finally, I had to ask myself the question, when's that going to happen? Because I'm like three, four years down the road now, and I've just been sort of wallowing in this, this insecurity over this situation. And I know that God wants forgiveness for me, but when am I going to embrace it? That's a, that's a tough question. You know what I mean? When you look yourself in the mirror and you're like, okay, seriously, time to pull yourself together. Either, either Jesus paid the bill and he didn't. And yeah, you're not perfect, but neither is anybody else. God knew that when he came to die for you. So, so when are we moving on from this? When are we going to embrace the things that we say we believe in? You know, those, those are tough questions to have with yourself, uh, but they're important ones. They're really, really critical. And I had to ask myself that question because I knew that forgiveness was the key that would open the door. I could, I could walk out of the cell at any time. All it was going to take was forgiveness. That was the key. And so I had to get to that point. There's a really brilliant guy named Oswald Chambers, uh, the my utmost for his highest guy, if you're familiar with that. Uh, he died actually about 100 years ago this past fall. A lot, uh, a lot more eloquent and intelligent than me, and this is how he said the same thing that I just tried to say but took, you know, a hundred times longer. He said, beware of looking back at what you once were when God wants you to become something you've never been. Don't, don't get stuck looking back at that thing, those words or whatever it was that I'm hanging on to. Don't get stuck looking back at that because what God wants you to become, it's out there. It's that direction. Don't get stuck looking back there, because hanging on to it's going to rob you of your future. Hanging on to the past will rob you of your future. So there's some great examples of this in the scripture. Uh, the first one is, uh, is one of the most well-known people, a bunch of movies made about it, even some cartoons, Moses. Moses has a phenomenal story. Uh, Moses had an incredible life. So let's, uh, let's try this out for size. Pastor, Rick told, uh, Pastor, Rick, Pastor Mike told me that you, this is a really smart church, so I'm going to test his theory. The first book of the Bible is, you were right. You were not kidding. The second book of the Bible is, okay, I was so nervous that it would be like crickets right there. But no, we got it. Exodus chapter 2, Moses comes on the scene. Here's what happens. He comes, uh, he's born at a time when the nation of Israel, God's people, they're slaves in Egypt. And uh, so they're, uh, they've been slaves for hundreds of years at this point, and they are just being worked to the bone. Uh, if you take you know, our sort of North American 19th century picture of slavery, uh, this is far worse uh, than those conditions. And uh, so they're in slavery, and Pharaoh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, asks himself this question. He thinks to himself, hey, you know, there's, uh, there's like a couple million of these guys now. What's gonna happen when there's more of them than there is us and they don't wanna be slaves anymore? Now, I totally disagree with how he was conducting business, but that's a reasonable question for someone in his position to ask. His solution, however, is less reasonable. His solution is he's going to effectively exterminate an entire generation of Hebrew males to sort of keep their population at bay. So Moses' mom has this idea. She decides she's going to take a basket and she's going to waterproof it with like uh, some kind of tree sap, some things like that, and she's going to float Moses down the river. Now, if you're a parent, that would probably be a really hard, hard decision to make. However, if your options are certain death or likely death, okay, well, it's probably the better of the two options. So she floats him down the river, and who finds him? Pharaoh's daughter. 
Now, in your household, you probably have maybe anywhere from like one person to maybe seven, eight, ten people. You know, most of us are like single digits or around there. Uh, small households. Pharaoh's household could have been hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. So the idea that this new baby would come into his household is not uncommon for them. Totally different environment. His daughter decides to keep him. And Moses grows up in the palace, in Pharaoh's household, has this charmed upbringing while his people are out working away day by day in the desert as slaves to Pharaoh. And after being raised in the palace, even though he was Hebrew, Moses has a really defining moment. He comes to an intersection that will change his life forever. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, this is what it says. It says, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So in a moment of impulse, moment of rage, Moses does something that's pretty stupid. It's a pretty impulsive action. You ever, you ever done something that you wished you hadn't done in a moment of impulse? No? That's for other people, not, not us. Moses makes a really bad decision in a moment of impulse, but good thing he made sure nobody was looking, right? The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Uh-oh. Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And Moses thinks, okay, if this guy knows, everybody's going to know soon. Have you ever done something that you regretted and thought, oh, man, pretty soon everybody's going to know about this, or pretty soon my wife is going to know about this, or so-and-so is going to know my boss or whomever. Uh, Moses has that same thought, and the fear and the anxiety they, they set in. Verse 15 says, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh, and he went to live in Midian. Midian is in the middle of nowhere. It's like Eatonville. That, that was for you, Ty. <laughs> no, Midian is, is out in the desert. It's, it's nowhere, and that's exactly the place that Moses was looking for. Nowhere. Hoping that no one would find him. No one would ever make him give account for, for what he'd done. And uh, I find myself reading this story, and Moses is out there for years, in the middle of nowhere, out in the wilderness, and I got to ask myself, is it really worth it? Was hiding from the past, was it, was it really worth trying to deal with the past? You know, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes I, I find that we go, into, uh, we go into hiding from our mistakes and then we get a couple of years down the road and realize, man, if I would have just dealt with that in the first place, I'd be a lot better off right now. That ever, that ever happened to you? Because, you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable to have to eat crow or make a course correction. The only thing worse than me having to go back and undo what I just did is me waiting 10 years and then having to go back and undo what I just did. You know, here's a habit that we have. It's good for us to be aware of. We tend not to change until the pain of staying the same is worse than the pain of change. And that can take a long time. But we tend not to make changes that we know we should make in our lives until the pain of making 
that change becomes just a little bit less than the pain of staying the same. We just wait for the scales to tip. Uh, if they're both going to be bad, might have been better to just deal with it, deal with it up front. But you got to ask yourself, is hiding from the past worth living in isolation over? Apparently Moses thought so. Um, I don't know. I guess that's a question probably only you can, only you can ask yourself. So that's Moses' story. That's, that's the cliff notes on Moses' story. The second one is David. You remember David? David and Goliath. Most, most, well-known, uh, most well-known story in David's life. As a junior hire, the Israelite army is being mocked by this giant, a, a, a literal large human, a giant, and he goes out and fights him to the death. It's pretty cool. It reminds me of my favorite all-time Super Bowl commercial. This is not in my notes. I shouldn't even go down this road. But uh, when I was a kid, there's a Super Bowl commercial. And it was that scene. He slings the rock. Rock hits David, David falls, and then the camera cuts to the rock, and the rock falls on the ground. It has a little Wilson logo on it. Anybody remember that one? Best Super Bowl commercial of all time. David goes out and fights Goliath, and the people love him. The people cheer for David. They write songs about David. Uh, there was one recorded, maybe the most famous song of all time. It went like this. Saul has slain his thousands, and David his. Gosh, this is a smart church. I got to find somebody in heaven who actually knows the song, because I got to be honest, sounds like a pretty dumb song to me, but you read it and you're like, well, who cares? They both killed a bunch of people. What kind of, what kind of top 40 hit is that? They love David. They sing songs about him. They cheer him in the streets. And eventually, they actually replace King Saul with David. He becomes their new king. And David and Goliath remains the the most well-known story of his lifetime, but it wasn't the most defining story of his lifetime. The most defining story in David's lifetime, his defining moment was his interaction with a woman named Bathsheba and her husband Uriah. Um, No songs that I know of about this particular one. Uh, A lot of country songs that strike up a similar tone. but to my knowledge, no one has written a song about this. i got to figure out where I, where I am here. Uh, so David becomes a king. He succeeds Saul. And one night, uh, during a time of year when his armies are out to battle, uh, I would never have known from history that there's actually, like, fighting season when they go out to battle, but it turns out there was. Uh, his armies are gone. David's at home in the palace. And one night, he goes out onto, like, a terrace, like a rooftop terrace, and he sees a woman bathing. All right. David's apparently a normal guy at this point. He says to his attendant, hey, why don't you go find out who that is over there? He goes and he comes back and says, well, that's Bathsheba. She's the wife of Uriah who's in your army. And David says, well, hey, why don't you go ask her to come over? And the servant says, that's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, a guy in your army. I heard that. Go get her. Tell her to come back. Of course, if you know the story, you know that she stays there with him and, and eventually she becomes pregnant. And now there's, there's a real problem, right? Because Uriah's out at battle. But David has a great solution. The solution is, I'm going to send for Uriah and have him come home because he deserves a little R&R. Come spend some time with your wife. Uriah comes home, of course. And David says, hey, I just want you to take a few days and go hang out with your wife. Just have, have a good time with your family. Get a little rest. Uriah, of course, is apparently the most honorable human in the history of honorable humans, and he says, hey, my men are still out of battle. I'm not going home to my wife till they come home to theirs. How much do you love Uriah right now? Is he not the greatest person that's ever lived? So he, he doesn't go. He, he stays home, stays uh, at the palace, and, and uh, the next day, David says, okay, I didn't know you were going to like turn out to be this impeccable human. 
So he gets him drunk and then sends him home. And Uriah goes home and he sleeps in the yard, which is weird here. It's normal where I live. Uh, he sleeps in the yard because I'm not going home to my wife until my men come home to their wives. I love Uriah. Well, David has a final solution to this problem because he's a thinker. And he, uh, he looks this way, and he looks that, and he makes sure that nobody's looking, just like Moses. And he writes a letter to a guy named Joab, who's like a, uh, like a general, you might say, in his army. He's Uriah's boss. And he gives the letter and says, take this to Joab. 2 Samuel eleven fourteen. this is how it went down. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, and then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. How bad do you want to kill David right now? I'm just going to be honest, okay? I know the Bible says he's a man after God's own heart. He slayed his ten thousands. Israel's greatest king, all that. But right now I'm thinking, he's a dirtbag. Like, I, I, there's nothing he could do at this point in the story that would make him more offensive to me. Like, that's, that's the reality. Uh, he could probably add some other offenses to it, but it wouldn't make it any worse. He's, he's already, like, literally at the bottom of my list. That's, that's what I see in David right now. Of course, Uriah delivers the letter. Shortly thereafter, Uriah's dead, and David thinks, whew, problem solved. Now I'm just the good guy who took Uriah's widow in and took care of her, and she got to live at the palace and have children. That's, that's what he thinks is going to happen, and he thinks he's buried the past deep enough that no one would find out if not for that darn Nathan. Nathan was a smart guy who listened to the voice of God. He figured out what happened, and eventually David had to give account for it. He confronted David about it. But later on in the Psalms, David laments his decision to hide the past. You ever decided, okay, I'm going to try to cover that one up, and then later on had a lot of regret about it, and all of a sudden it's this big thing, and you're the only one who knows, and you're carrying it around. There's really nobody you can talk to about it. This is how David describes his condition during that season. In Psalm 32, 3, he said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. That's what holding on to the past will do to you. It will feel as if there is a hand heavy on you. And that's exactly what it did to David. Uh, my friend, many of our friend and mentor, Pastor Chris Hansler, he had a saying for this. He probably got it from somebody else, but I heard it from him, so I'm giving him credit. He said, sin will make you go farther than you wanted to go, and it will make you stay there longer than you wanted to stay, and it will make you pay more than you wanted to pay. That's what sin does in our lives. And that's what we see happen in David's case. David could tell you all about the truth of that statement. So you got Moses, you got David. Third guy I'll tell you about, we gotta move quicker, is a, is a guy named Saul, later became known as Paul. So fast forward a little bit into the New Testament. Uh, this is after Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. And uh, the New Testament tells us that Jesus appeared, the resurrected Jesus, to over 500 people. Now, as you can imagine, after he appeared to over 500 people, this thing starts to, starts to swell a little bit. I mean, that's, that ain't nothing, right? Resurrection is a pretty big deal. So the church is starting to grow, 
and there's a group of Jews who are highly opposed. Uh, there's opposition on all sides because you have the Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus because he claimed to be God. Uh, that's a problem for them. So they have huge opposition to this Christian movement. But they're also occupied by the Roman Empire. That's the dominant empire uh, of their day. And the Christians are calling Jesus their king. Of course, the Romans say, no, no, no. Caesar's the only king around here. So it's a problem for them too. There's pressure on all sides. And so one day, a guy named Stephen is having this encounter with a group of Jews and these very you know, religiously devout people. And he starts to explain to them how they were wrong about Jesus. Now, uh, my experience with religiously arrogant people who lack self-awareness is that, in general, they don't respond all that favorably to being told they're wrong. That was the case for Stephen. Stephen starts to use their own scriptures to explain to them, no, no, see, there was all these prophecies about how the Messiah would come, but people wouldn't recognize him, and they'd eventually kill him. Like, that, that was you guys. That was Jesus. He's explaining to this, and he's like spot on. If you read the account in Acts chapter 7, he's nailing it. There's no argument. So they do what we would do. They cover their ears. Literally, it says they covered their ears. In Acts chapter 7, verse 57, it says, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Because if you disagree with what someone says, the obvious thing to do is throw rocks at them until they're dead. I think we can all agree. The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of their killing him. That was, that was Saul, the leader of this band who was attempting to stamp out Christianity. Literally wipe it off the earth. Acts chapter 8 verse 2 says, On that day... A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison, which in their day was generally the precursor to execution. At this point, Saul has dedicated his life to stamping out Christianity. He's in 100% opposition to Jesus, to the work of Christ. He's devoted his life's work to that. And that's his plan, except later on, uh, he'd eventually be called to account. God would confront him, and, and he would turn the other direction. But because he had this past behind him, made him pretty hard for him to go around among the other Christians and do ministry, right? Because this is Saul who, uh, who used to kill us. And so what he eventually had to do was he had to go to completely foreign lands where no one knew who he was to share the gospel because his past was this huge weight around his neck. Okay, so that's Saul, who later became known as Paul. Moses, David, Saul. Some of you know those stories in greater detail. Some of you, you just know the cliff notes that, that I gave you. But I, would just want, I told you those stories because I want to call attention to two common threads, two things that all three of these guys have in common, okay? The first one is that they're all murderers. And not really for, you know, the most noble reasons. I mean, Moses was impulsive. David was trying to cover up his own poor decisions. Saul, Saul just didn't like what they said. Like, he's the worst one because it's not like they were doing anything to him. He just disagreed with them. Like, that's, that's crazy. 
But that's the decision they made. So, so let that sink in for a second. Like, just for context, let's just say I get done here in just a minute, and Pastor Mike comes up, and he says, okay, you know, we're all done. Love you guys. Glad you made it. Uh, killed some people. See you next Sunday. <laughs> How many of you are coming back next week? <laughs> well played, my friend. Um, hopefully none of you are coming back next week, although, you know, that's good comedy, so maybe you got something there. Um, all three of these guys are murderers, okay? Uh, that's, that's about as depraved as we can get. To, to disagree with someone, so my solution is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your life, okay? That's, that's about as far, far down as there is, as there is to go. So they, they have that in common. The other thing they have in common, which is so contradictory to the first thing, is that other than Jesus, these are three, maybe the three most prominent figures in God's plan for the reconciliation and redemption of humanity. How do you marry those two things? How do you, how do you put those two things together? What makes the gospel beautiful is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not that God gave us the opportunity to you know, clean it up and fix our past, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even in their incredible mistakes, Moses led God's people out of captivity in Egypt and established the entire Old, Old Testament covenant, the system of the law. David, to this day, Israel's greatest king. He wrote most of the Psalms. Saul, who became Paul, he established the church in the entire non-Jewish world. He was, he was God's guy to take the gospel to the rest of the known world. How do, you, how do you put those two things together? I mean, they're both true. They were murderers, and they were three of the most prominent figures in God's plan for redemption. How do those things play together? I, I don't get that. that. That's just hard for me to hang on to. But one of the things that each of them had to do was they had to deal with their past. Each of them had to give account for it. Each of them had to own their mistakes. The same is true for us. They tried to run. They tried to hide. They tried to distance themselves. But your past will always be your past. It's your story. It's how you got here. The way you got from there to here was you took steps and you ended up here. Your past is your story. The question is, what kind of story is it going to be? Is it going to be a tragedy? Is it going to be a comedy? Is it going to be a comeback story? What kind of story are you going to have? I love what Oswald Chambers said, and this is, this is really good instruction for us. He said, leave the irreversible past in God's hands. It's not reversible. It can't be undone. Leave it in God's hands and step out into the invincible future with him. Because God's got a future, and guess what? Even you, even you can't undo God's plans. You might try and take the scenic route. Uh, you might just decide that you want your own plans instead. But he's got plans for you. And he might have to hold you by the hand and lead you along the way, but he's willing to do that. God has made a way to redeem all of that brokenness. And so uh, I just came up with this, uh, with this little illustration Maybe somebody else has used it before, but um, I like to think I'm novel in, on this one. Uh, it's the simplest way 
that I can just give you a mental picture of why this is important for you. Simplest visual, visual I can give you. You know what this is, right? Hopefully, if you have a driver's license, you recognize this. This is, an, this is a rear view mirror, right? And, and you know what this is for, right? You're driving along, you glance in that, you see what's behind you. Uh, especially if your car is in R for race, I'm told. Uh, you use this to see what's behind you. Um, so let me just ask you a really obvious question. What's going to happen if I'm driving down the freeway and I'm staring into this the entire time? I'm, I'm going to crash, right? That's, that's what's obviously going to happen. It's a terrible way to go forward because when I'm staring into this rearview mirror, guess what I'm completely oblivious to? Whatever's in front of me. I can see what's behind me really clearly through this, but I'm oblivious to whatever's in front of me. I'm oblivious to wherever God might be taking me when I'm looking in the rear view. If someone hurt you in the past, there's nothing they can do that's gonna undo the past because your past is your story. It's how you got here. If you've made some mistakes that you regret in the past, there's nothing you can do that's gonna undo that. You can't make it unhappen but it's part of your story. The way out of that prison cell is to walk out. Forgiveness of self, forgiveness of others, that will be the key to opening that door. And God has given us a brilliant example in the person of Jesus Christ, who walked down the road, he carried the cross, he hung there and he died because of your sin and mine. Not that we deserved it, but because he loved us. It is possible. He's given us that example. Of course, Paul eventually came to faith in Christ, and it would have been really easy for him to just be a miserable, self-loathing church curmudgeon uh, and just sort of make it into heaven. But one of the most profound things he said in his letter to his understudy Timothy, First uh, Timothy 1, verse 15, he said, Timothy, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. You know what that means? Nobody gets to say, not me. He said, I'm the worst, so that nobody gets to say, not me. For that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. No one gets to say, not me, and no one gets to say, not you. You hurt me too bad. You're, you're, you're too wrong in this case. Forgiveness is the key to walking out the door. And so right now, uh, I think there's probably about three possible responses that you can, you can do with this idea of forgiveness. Uh, some people are going to assume that's for somebody else. Like, I'm, I'm good. There's not really anything that I'm, I'm carrying around. I'm good. Maybe there has been. Maybe you've already dealt with those things. If that's you, praise God for that. That is living proof of God's grace at work in your life. If, if that's honestly where you're at, you're, you're good. Yeah, you don't have things to deal with that in that regard. Some people might decide, yeah, I know I have a wound there. I know I have an insecurity there, but I'm just not quite ready to deal with that yet. So I think I'm going to kick the can a little farther down the road. Maybe next time I come across to it will be the time. Uh, some people are going to make that decision. Uh, I guess what I would say to that is you don't have to. That's, you, you can do that, but you don't have to. 
But somebody's not going to do either of those things. Somebody's going to decide, you know what, today's the day I'm going free. Today's the day that I'm actually going to take the weight off. Today's the day that I'm actually going to say, God, I can't carry this anymore. You're going to have to, and I'm giving it to you. And to you, I say, welcome to freedom. If that's, if that's the choice that you're making, God, the past is yours. I say, welcome to freedom. Let him, let him have that. When it tries to come back, remember this. Jesus paid the bill for you in full. It is, it is already paid. You don't have to pick that up again. Your past is your past. What's done is done. You don't have to carry it. You can let it go. If you're in a position of weakness, like maybe I was when I was just dealing with this, uh, this crisis of confidence that uh, I mentioned before, one of the things that I didn't realize is that when I'm in a position of weakness, I'm perfectly postured for God to do a miracle in my life. Uh, have, you, have you noticed that when you read through the biblical narrative and you see God do miraculous things, it's always in situations where it looks like there's no other way because there isn't any other way. You're in exactly the position so if that's you today, and you're ready, you're ready to let the weight go. You're, you're ready to set the weight down and be able to breathe freely again. I want to give you this scripture. You might want to maybe write it down or just make a note of it in your phone. It's 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Today can be the day. So I want to pray for you. And if that's you today and you want to let that go, you know what? You can. It's okay to let it go. God has open hands to carry that burden for you. Lord, I, I thank you so much that you have just incredible care for us. And that moment that might have been years ago when somebody did that thing or said that thing, when that offense happened, God, you were there. You saw it. You understand what it's done in our hearts and in our Minds, you understand the ways that it's damaged our confidence and our self-worth. God, you knew today was coming too. You made provision for all of that 2,000 years ago. So God, I pray that in the lives of those who choose forgiveness, God, would you lift their weight even right now? Holy Spirit, would you move in and fill that void where you're just pushing the pain and the bitterness out? God, teach us to lean on you for continued strength, for continued healing. God, for the person who's carrying around an insecurity, maybe over a mistake or a series of bad choices or maybe just a season of life where we just made a mess, God, I pray that you would whisper, it's okay to let it go. It's okay to forgive yourself. God, I pray that you would just give us full healing in this regard and take that weight. In Jesus' name, amen.